It's a privilege to open God's Word with you week after week. Thank you for the joy of gathering together. Hope that your soul is warmed today and helped and strengthened by the Word of God. And please take your copy of the Word of God and turn to Luke chapter 5. We have a longer passage today than than we normally uh, take in one sermon, but we'll break it up into four sections and um, move relatively quickly through them. But I uh, really didn't know where else to divide this passage when I was studying it this summer. Um, We could have stopped at verse 16 and then taken the next chunk the next week. And that's how we often take the the passages here. But it felt like there were some threads that tied these four together. Uh, And so I've labeled this four sayings of Jesus, four messages that Jesus gave to the people in his hearing uh, as he taught and as he worked miracles and uh, ministered about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, in that region of the world. So this is a longer text, but uh, I'll just begin by reading verses 12 through 16 for now, and then as we move from one section to the next, we'll read that section at that point. Verses 12 through 16 of Luke chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, and go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, and he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On January 12, 2007, a man emerged from the Washington, D.C. metro station at LaFont Plaza and positioned himself next to a trash can. The young man wore a t-shirt, jeans, and a baseball cap. He removed a violin from a small case and then placed the open case in front of him, facing the pedestrian traffic. Then the man began to play. It was 7.51 a.m. on a Friday, the middle of the morning rush hour, For the next 43 minutes, the man performed six classical pieces as nearly 1,100 people passed by. Would any of these people stop to enjoy the music? The fiddler standing against against the bare wall outside the metro wasn't your normal street performer. His name is Joshua Bell, one of the finest classical musicians in the world. He was a musical prodigy at age four and is now an acclaimed virtuoso. He packs out concert halls around the world. The music that Bell played that morning was far from ordinary. Over those 43 minutes, Bell played masterpieces that have endured for centuries, some of the most elegant music ever written, and he played this beautiful music on one of the most valuable violins ever made. Bell's violin is a Stradivarius, handcrafted in 1713, and it's worth $3.5 million. On that Friday back in 2007, over a thousand people had a free front row ticket to a beautiful concert by one of the world's most famous musicians, but only if they had the eyes to see and the ears to hear in order to enjoy this astounding privilege. And yet, only a handful of people in the metro that morning stopped to listen and enjoy Bell's glorious music. We've been reading of Jesus doing wonderful works and giving beautiful sermons, powerful sermons from the Word of God, explaining the Old Testament to the people living in 
Judea, Galilee, and Jerusalem, as we'll get to later on in the book of Luke. But how did people react to Jesus? Were they overwhelmed by what they heard, or did he just come across as another guy playing a violin in a metro station? And our passage today has a mix of both of those in some ways, as the passages before us have. Jesus looked like any other person. He didn't have a glow, a warm hue about him that set him apart. He didn't have a halo on. He wore what everybody around him wore. He ate what everybody around him ate. He looked like a normal guy, but he was doing things that were not normal. And so in our passage today, we see people responding to Jesus in various ways, some positive, some negative, as we realize that Jesus was a very polarizing figure. As many politicians are, as many athletes are, the world's movers and shakers, people either like them or don't like them, generally speaking. And Jesus was certainly that kind of person as well. But who was this Jesus? What can we learn about him from what he says? And as we look at four sayings of Jesus today, that we're trying to kind of gather what is a, a good way to describe who Jesus is. What's a full-orbed way of answering who Jesus is? And this passage tells us, kind of uh, putting the, the four sections we're going to look at together, which is very challenging to do. There's, you know, trying to find what is the common denominator here. But essentially, it is that Jesus came to earth to accomplish God's plan. And he's doing huge things. He's doing massive spiritual works in front of these people's eyes, whether they realized it or not, whether they heard, stopped and heard the music or not. So Jesus came to accomplish God's eternal plan, and this passage then calls you and calls the first reader, Theophilus, Luke's friend Theophilus that he's writing to back in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. He tells you, he tells Theophilus, he tells us as Christians to follow this Jesus. Faithfully follow him. He is worthy of your trust and your repentance and your discipleship. And so the first saying, the one that we read here in verses 12 through 16, is that Jesus said, I am willing, be clean. Jesus came to make people clean, here in verses 12 through 16. He didn't come for those of us who clean up nicely ourselves. There is no one like that, as we'll see. But he came into the world to save desperate people. And we see here this man who who was a man full of leprosy, and really this is a, a catch-all term for a, a way of saying he had a particular kind of skin disease. And there are you know, variations of leprosy, we could say. There are some that are particularly deadly and disgusting. And we don't know exactly what this man's condition was, but we do know from other portions of the Bible that leprosy was significantly Uh, negative, viewed significantly negatively. And so when this man is encountering, or when when Jesus is encountering this man who is a leper, he's encountering someone who is an outcast in society. And someone who had any form of leprosy, the book of Leviticus tells us, in order to live in Israel and, and follow God, you had to follow certain restrictions with your leprosy. You had to Stay outside the camp is what Leviticus tells us. In other words, you couldn't be going to the temple. You couldn't be spending time with other people. You had to COVID isolate, but until you were completely clean. And what made it perhaps even more humiliating was that you had to keep, every time somebody came by you, came near you, you had to tell them that you were unclean. You had to shout out, unclean unclean, so that people would keep their distance from you. Imagine if every time somebody that had COVID near you had to tell you, unclean, unclean, and not just wear a mask, 
and a face shield and all this other stuff, they're yelling out, I am unclean, everywhere they go. In our society that, you know, today we might actually appreciate that, like, oh, okay, well, I'll just go to Aldi instead of Jewel or something like that. But this was humiliating. This was a way of saying, I shouldn't be near you and you shouldn't come over here. And so somebody who had leprosy, no one would ever touch them. You, they couldn't touch them. They would be then unclean themselves. It was viewed as very contagious, whether it was or not, depending on the certain kind of skin disease that he had. But people ignored lepers. People looked the other way. People walked the other way. And so lepers then would die often in isolation and loneliness and sorrow, often in excruciating pain and completely without anyone showing any kind of compassion to them. If they're going to get food, it's because people throw them scraps because they couldn't go into the markets to get food themselves. And so we have this man who is full of leprosy and he sees Jesus and he falls on his face, which we've already seen people do that before Jesus. The man with a demon a couple passages ago fell on his face before Jesus. Here this man falls on his face, a sign of humility, and he says, Lord, if you will, if you are willing, not if you have the power. He knew Jesus had the power. How did he know that? Either things he had seen with his own eyes or messages he had heard with his own ears. And now he sees Jesus walking by. And so it, it makes us you know, begin to realize he's becoming a very popular figure here. People recognize him, maybe because he has such a crowd around him. But Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean, which is a way of saying you can make me ceremonial clean. You can take away my leprosy and make it so that I'm not sick at all and now I'm able to go back into the temple and back into society. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. How could Jesus have healed this man? By just thinking something? Yes. By saying something? Yes. By you know, kind of using like the force in Star Wars and being like, I'll keep my distance from you and it'll just kind of zap you from 10 feet away. He could have done that if he wanted to. What did he do? For the first time in weeks or months, someone touched this man. And Jesus compassionately put his hand on him and said, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. We see Jesus' compassion here. And again, this takes us back to Leviticus 13 and 14. Let me just read this, um, this section here briefly. The leprous person, this is in chapter 13 of Leviticus, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes. Make it obvious to everybody that you have leprosy. And let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. That's what it's like to be a leper. And then once you were finally clean, you've come to a certain number of days where you no longer have any infection on your skin, then you can go to a priest and have that person declare you clean. And Jesus skips that, that process of here, wait your two-week quarantine period beyond not having a, a negative, you know, beyond having a negative test result, Go ahead and just go back to the priest and let him declare you to be clean now. And so Jesus uh, encourages this man, helps this man after healing him, and he tells him not to tell other people about this experience. Why would he do that? Well, it seems that Jesus was often 
in a sense, trying to keep his identity as the Messiah hidden until it was the right time so that people wouldn't be coming to him just for spiritual work. He was saying, I'm here for physical work, and if I'm being surrounded all the time by people who only see my value to their physical lives, it's going to interfere with what he's doing spiritually. And so he, he frequently tells people in the Gospels to not tell other people about this. Well, this man has had the day of his life, and he can't contain himself, it seems. And so he goes, and he says, the report about him went abroad. One of the other Gospels, I believe Matthew says, he went and told everybody. So um, more specifically than Luke does here. And the great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. What do we see happening here? We see Jesus showing tremendous compassion to someone who is in desperate need of it. And I believe we should pray. One of the ways we can pray through this passage for our own church, as you think about just how can you serve your church family by praying for them, pray that God would give us this same attitude, willing to go to the people who are the outcasts, who are outside the camp, so to speak, and give you a heart marked by compassion and generosity and hands-on kindness and humility and gentleness. And just like this man was desperate to get to Christ, may the Lord give us hearts that are desperate to get to Christ as well through communion with him and his word and prayer. And then you notice at the end of this little unit, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray if Jesus, the Son of God, had to go into the wilderness and into places where he could be alone for a season to pray. Does that not say that we should do the same as well? And so uh, one thing I could encourage you to do is maybe on a nice fall day like we had yesterday, go out to one of the beautiful forest preserves around here and take your Bible and a hymnal and a notebook and commune with God for hours. Take a thermos of coffee or tea and just Sit with God and pray and sing and read and let your communion with God grow and let your, your fellowship with God be nourished and fed and take delight in God as Jesus himself was doing here in verse 16. So Jesus came to make people clean. This next unit, verses 17 through 26, is very similar. There are a lot of similarities we could point out. We won't for the sake of time, but... Clearly, and this is, again, why we're taking a bigger unit in Luke 5, clearly Luke intended, he put these two back to back so that we'd read them in light of each other. And so that's why we're taking them together here as well. Verses 17 to 26, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus came to forgive sins. Again, very similar to Jesus coming to cleanse people. Jesus came to forgive sins. And so we have this man who is a paralytic here. Let me read verses 17 through 26 and and. Marvel at what Jesus does in this unit as well. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus But finding no way to bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before him. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. These people recognized the value of the violin in their presence, so to speak. These people got the message. There is something amazing going on here. The people brought this man to Jesus because they assumed his greatest need was paralysis. He needs somebody who can help him walk again. So let's go to Jesus. And Jesus sees him and says, yes, you have a great need, but it's invisible to you and to many of the people around you. Your greatest need is forgiveness, not the ability to walk. We see here in verse 17 that there are these Pharisees here. If you've never heard of that term, a Pharisee is someone who uh, was an, uh, an Old Testament scholar, someone who was especially eager to keep God's law out of love for God, out of a desire to serve God, in, in most cases, they, they often probably at least started with very good intent, but then they would often go a little further and make things a little more uh, man-centered and man-oriented than they should have been in the first place. So maybe you have a problem. You would say, uh, you know, I noticed that there's a piece of gum on the carpet here in the auditorium. Well, a Pharisee might say, okay, well, not only should you not chew gum anymore, you shouldn't even have gum, okay? So they're going to, like, protect the law. The law is no gum in in the auditorium, okay, well, in order to keep that law, let's just make sure you don't have any period. And so maybe they're going to go through your purses to, to make sure that, or your pockets, to make sure you don't have any gum with you. So a Pharisee is super intent on keeping God's law. Again, maybe it's because they love God initially, that that's why they had this motivation, but then they kind of started to create their own sect, so to speak, their own group. And there were the in-group and the out-group. And so you have these Pharisees here, and they... Uh, were certainly beginning to recognize that Jesus was a unique person, that he was doing things that they'd never seen before, but weren't really sure what to make of this person. And so lots of people are gathering around to hear what he has to say. And so many people that they couldn't even get in the door. And who knows what what exactly this looked like, whether they had to uh, take shovels up on the roof to to pry the roof back, uh, what exactly that looked like. But you can just imagine as as the roof kind of crumbles in in the middle of the room, people perhaps stepping back wherever they can. It's probably warm in the room because so many bodies are packed in together and they lower this man down. And when Jesus saw him, he was obviously concerned with the man's paralysis and he deals with that problem. But he looks beyond the visible physical problems that we have. And he sees these, uh, these people's faith. How do you see faith? Well, you see the action that comes from faith, obviously. And it, it says here that, he, that, uh, that when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And people started to question. The scribes, the people who would perhaps write down God's law and keep copies of God's word available, and the Pharisees, these righteous, in their minds at least, uh, followers of God began to question. And I say that, you know, I, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt that many Pharisees were seeking to love God and follow God, but they often did go too far as well. And so these are often presented negatively here in the, in the Gospels. But their response, they begin to question, who is this who speaks blasphemies? 
what we notice is that they're asking this question in their minds. Perhaps they're not grumbling out loud, like perhaps they will later on in other passages, and certainly even in our next passage, our next unit here, but their thoughts, maybe their, their posture changes. And it gets a little uncomfortable when people look around and, and say, boy, that, what is he talking about here? And Jesus recognizes what they're thinking. How does he do that? Well, the passage tells us that, that the, the power of the Spirit was with him to heal. Let me see which verse that was. If anybody sees it, you can... Uh, verse, verse 18, end of verse, uh, end of verse 17. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. So what we understand is that the Holy Spirit is teaching Jesus, is giving Jesus this understanding. Again, Jesus is fully man, just like you and me. Yes, he's fully God as well, but here in these instances, the Holy Spirit is teaching him uh, and, and speaking to him directly. And so he understands that people are asking these questions. Who is this person who is speaking blasphemies? Because, why is this blasphemy? Because, obviously, only God can forgive, and in order to be forgiven of your sin, you have to go to the temple. You have to make a sacrifice. There's a certain order of doing things, and Jesus is not following that order. And Jesus, you know, this question of who are you to say you can forgive sins... Jesus could have said, well, I'm God, I'm the Son of God. Or he could say, well, let me show you what, it looks, what, what my power looks like. Do you think it's, it's easier to declare someone free of, forgiveness, free of their sins? I could, I could tell any of you guys that, but I don't have the power to grant you forgiveness. And so Jesus goes a step further and says, well, I'll show you that I have the power to forgive because I also have the power to heal you. And so the man rises up and walks in verse 25. He picked up what he was lying on and went home glorifying God. What you notice as well in verse 24 is that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is the first time this this title is used here in Luke, and he's going to use it a lot more times. And it's not a way of referring to his humanity. I think that's what I usually assumed that it it meant uh, growing up, that when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was referring to his humanity as opposed to his deity. But he's actually quoting Daniel chapter 7. Let me read a a, a small portion of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him, this son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So every time Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's referring back to Daniel 7. And again, these scribes and Pharisees would have caught that. They knew the Old Testament well. So this also seems blasphemous, to call yourself the Son of Man. But Jesus is identifying himself as being God by saying he is the Son of Man. What Jesus is doing here is bringing in, breaking in the new kingdom. The new heavens and new earth are starting to break in. Like if you're in a totally dark room and someone opens a latch that allows the window to pop open just a little bit or the door to pop open a little bit and sunlight bursts in, there's a little like shimmer of sunshine coming into that room. The room is still mostly dark, but you can see, maybe you can see the dust moving its way through that beam of light. And that beam of light is kind of like what Jesus is doing here. The new heavens and the new earth, the new kingdom is breaking in 
into human reality, and it's giving us anticipation of what it will be like when the curse is gone and when there is no such thing as leprosy or paralysis. And so this is an allusion in many ways to Isaiah 35, where Isaiah writes, Then the eyes, let me back up verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. What will it be like when that happens? Verse 5 of Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man, the paralytic man lying on a bed in a hut where the roof has been torn back, the lame man shall leap like a deer. That's what this man does. Luke doesn't record it that way. He doesn't show him galloping out of the room and describe it that way exactly. But he gets up and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God, praising God, celebrating God's kindness to him. Jesus came to forgive sins. That's the message of verses 17 through 26. Jesus came to cleanse people, to forgive sins. And in verses 27 through 32, Jesus came to gather repentant followers. So Jesus leaves this house and goes out walking on his way down by the Sea of Galilee, likely. And he sees a tax booth. And so this is you know, just like the old toll booths where you actually had to stop in order to pay a toll. And perhaps maybe there are still people who work there, but uh, not many, it doesn't seem. And so Matthew's sitting there, and maybe what his job was, and there are all kinds of taxes here in this Roman society, and maybe his job would have been, okay, you guys are unloading your your boats. I'm going to take a tax off of everything on your boats. So you're bringing $1,000 worth of valuables. You're going to give $100. We're just making this up, but you're going to give $100 to the government uh, because of the amount of, of money you brought into our port here. And maybe the problem, though, is what he should have been charging was $90. And that extra $10 was for his own pockets, to cushion his own pockets. And so tax collectors, in all the various different kinds of taxes that that were charged under the Roman government, tax collectors were viewed as the worst people in society, as the dregs of society, so much so that if, if, let's just say that uh, someone was murdered and two people witnessed the murder, and one of those people was a tax collector, they throw that person out of the room. We don't even want to hear what you saw. You can't even be considered a witness in the court of law because you're such a dirty person. You're such an untrustworthy person. That's how tax collectors were viewed. They were the dregs of society, and no one wanted anything to do with them because they recognized that they were stealing from everybody to pad their own pockets. And Jesus comes and sees one of these nasty guys of the world named Levi, a tax collector sitting at the tax booth. And notice what Jesus does. He doesn't wait for Levi to ask him a question or wait for Levi, who we know as Matthew elsewhere, to initiate a relationship with Jesus. Jesus initiates the relationship with Matthew. What I want to say is, theologically speaking, if you believe what the Bible teaches about salvation, if you are a Christian, in other words, and you love God and you have been converted, it is because of a gracious work of God in your heart in drawing you to himself. And so we can use different theological words for this. It can be calling, specifically effectual calling. This can be the fact that God draws us by his Holy Spirit. 
But what we see here is God taking the initiative, specifically Jesus taking the initiative in Matthew's life, just as God took the initiative in your life. And so if you are a Christian, praise God that he took the first step toward you. He didn't wait for you to come pursuing him. We sang last week, All I Have is Christ. And it talks about in the, in the second verse, I ran toward my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost. That's how humans are. We run from God. No one has ever run to God asking for mercy unless God has first drawn him, drawn that person toward him. And so marvel and rejoice in God's kindness in drawing Matthew here and drawing Levi Jesus came to gather repentant followers, is what we're seeing in this section. Jesus said to Matthew, follow me, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. It would have been really easy for Peter to go back to a fishing business if it didn't work out following Jesus. It would not have worked out well for Matthew to go back to a tax-collecting business. And he certainly never would have been recompensed as well as he had been you know he'd never been remunerated financially speaking as well as he was as a tax collector he's never going to make that kind of money again and so matthew or levi here is actually leaving a lot on the table perhaps quite literally and uh, in order to follow jesus but what we see by jesus saying follow me is that he is worthy of us following him and can i tell you there is no one else like that there's no politician that you should throw your lot in completely with. I don't care what side of the aisle you fall on. There is no politician who you should be a disciple of. You shouldn't be a disciple of either, I'm just going to throw names out, maybe they're still doing their job. You should not be a disciple of Anderson Cooper or of Sean Hannity. You should not be a disciple of an athlete or a musician or even a theologian. Heaven forbid. You should not be a disciple of... This is the idea where, where Paul says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. No, no, no. The, the, don't, don't say, I'm of Kevin DeYoung, I'm of John Piper, I'm of whoever. Just follow Jesus. Follow him. He's the only one worthy of your discipleship. Giving in to a movie star or an athlete or a politician and saying, this is the person who's going to make it all right. They're going to leave you disillusioned and empty and broken. Matthew, or Levi, was willing to leave everything. What would that look like for us as Christians? As people who are broken sinners, what would it look like for us to leave everything for the sake of following Christ? Perhaps this means you have to leave your job. That's certainly what it meant for Matthew. So there's one example, straight from the text. It means you have to leave you know, the dirty way that you make money. In most of our cases, we're not making money in dirty ways, as far as I'm aware. We can talk afterward if you are. But um, perhaps this means you need to break off a relationship. Maybe that, that college boyfriend of yours is not helping you follow Christ. Perhaps this means... Uh, you need to ask someone for forgiveness that you have held a grudge against for years and years. Perhaps this means you need to go turn yourself into the police. I hope that's unlikely in a situation like this, but is that ever an appropriate response? Does that look like repentance for some people? Yes. Yes. And so, what does it look like for me to follow Christ at this stage in my life? And that's the question that you have to evaluate. 
Perhaps it means you need to stop having a smartphone so that you can follow Christ. I highly recommend it. If you are struggling to use your time on anything besides your phone or struggling with indulging in pornography routinely where you just cannot get the upper hand, you don't have to have a smartphone. It is better to be considered weird and to have to print out Google Maps in order to drive somewhere than to be fighting this battle. What does it look like for you to follow Christ? Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew is saying, I'm willing to leave everything. I'm going to follow you. But it's not just any old person. He actually comes for repentant people. Okay? And now, granted, the Lord is the one who grants us the repentance, the gift of repentance. But what this is saying is you can't just say, I'm going to follow him, but live however I want. No, it doesn't work that way. When you follow Jesus, you leave everything behind. You live the way he wants you to live. And so, Levi celebrates God's grace to him as well. Just like we've seen the leper celebrate, he runs off and tells everybody, even though Jesus told him not to. Then you have this paralytic man running like a deer to celebrate God's grace. And now we have Levi, and he makes a great feast in his house. What we're seeing here, I think, is an evangelistic gathering, a way of saying, look how kind Christ has been to me. Now you come and listen to who Christ is as well. And so people come, and there is a large company of tax collectors, the worst of the worst people, all getting together in the same place. There are tax collectors and others. What does that mean? Probably prostitutes, probably criminals of other kinds, and they're all coming together in Levi's house, and this doesn't make people happy. The Pharisees and the scribes, again, grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And maybe you could say, yeah, we shouldn't be hanging out with people who are ungodly. No, we should be spending time with ungodly. But notice what Jesus is doing here. He's not leaving them where they are and saying, you can live however you want. He's calling them to himself. He's calling them to repentance, saying, leave your old ways behind Faithfully follow me as disciples. Jesus tells them in verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician. He's not saying you should never go get a routine physical, but but those who are sick are those who need a doctor. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The righteous, in this case, you could probably just put air quotes around because the Pharisees thought of themselves as the super righteous people. I don't need someone to tell me that I'm wrong. I I am fine with God the way I am. That's what the Pharisees would have said. And Jesus said, look, I'm for the people who are willing to say I am needy. I need to be cleansed. I need to be healed. I need to be renovated from the inside out. That's who Jesus came to minister to. He says, I came for repentance. Repentance is a change of thinking that results in a change of living. And we as Christians know that repentance is not something you do just at the moment of conversion, but it's something that continues on every day of the Christian life. So next Sunday is what holiday? Thank you. The first one I heard is Reformation Day. It's not Halloween. It's Reformation Day. So Reformation Day started, well, I don't know when people started celebrating it, but the first, the the year we're going back to is 1517. All right, October 31st, 1517. I didn't think through exactly how I was going to say that. When we celebrate Reformation Day, 
What we're saying is we're grateful for the providence of God in human history in helping people read their Bibles. That's what Martin Luther was doing, going back to his Bible and saying, this whole repentance thing isn't a one-time deal. And so he wrote these, these 95 sentences, we call them theses, and he posted them on a door, just as, which was basically saying he posted them on a bulletin board so people could have a conversation with him about it. And it started a conversation. And uh, it didn't go super well for him after that. But uh, what I'm saying is uh, the, first of the, the first three sentences, listen here, these are the first of the 95 theses. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, the Catholic sacrament that is confession and satisfaction as administered by the clergy. Yet it does not mean solely inner repentance. Such inner repentance is worthless unless it produces outward, uh, various outward mortification of the flesh. In other words, you can't just say, I repent in my heart. You actually have to show it by the way you live. That's, those are the first three of the 95 theses that started the Reformation. And we are the heirs, praise God, that 500 years later we are the heirs of the grace of God in human history through the Reformation. And so instead of celebrating Halloween next week, you can celebrate the Reformation. You can dress up like Martin Luther instead of a cowboy or something. What I'm saying is, Jesus did not come to show you how to, be C- how to be a CEO. Jesus did not come just to tell you how to be a good neighbor, though he did. Jesus did not come to be your cheerleader. Jesus did not come to give you inspirational sentences that you could put on wooden plaques and buy at Hobby Lobby. Jesus came to gather repentant sinners to follow him with their lives, leaving everything behind at great personal expense. And that is what Levi did, what Jesus called Levi to do. His goal was inward repentance that resulted in outward works. And finally, verses 33 through 39, certainly the the hardest of these four sections to kind of identify what is Jesus talking about here. So the first saying of Jesus, we got these four sayings of Jesus. Jesus says, I will be clean. So Jesus came to cleanse people. Then he said, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus came to forgive sinners. Then he said, follow me, and I have come to call sinners to repentance. So third, we saw Jesus came to gather repentant sinners. And now fourth, there's not one specific sentence uh, that that I'm going to use as, as our quote here, but basically here's what it is. Jesus came to begin a new era. Jesus came to begin a new era, so the, the sentence, if you want one, is the saying is, I bring a new and better covenant. Like I said, this is by far the most challenging section. But again, it's connected to the one before it, which is why we're, why we're using all four of these together today. You saw in this previous passage about Levi that they're eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. They're having parties. And now these Pharisees are saying, why are your guys partying so much? You know, our disciples fast a lot. They wear sackcloth. They mourn over sin. Even the disciples of John the Baptist do this. And your guys are acting like it's a party all the time. What is going on? And Jesus basically tells them it's because it is a party. It's because the old way is on its way out and the new way is on its way in. So the implication of verse 33 is your guys are partying too much 
And you, you know, we're taking life seriously while you guys are acting like life's a joke, life's a party. And Jesus would say, it is a party. A new era has begun with Jesus' arrival. And so if you go to a wedding and at the reception, nobody's eating anything and nobody's drinking anything and it feels more like you're at a funeral, you're doing it wrong. And Jesus is saying, the wedding began when I arrived. I have brought in the party. I have brought in the wedding. And so they're saying, uh, what Jesus says is in, in verse 34, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. When is this time when the bridegroom is going to be taken away? He's, I believe he's referring to the crucifixion. There's going to be a night where I'm led away and that's when my followers will mourn. And when you go to Luke 24, you see what the disciples are doing Say on the road to Emmaus, they're walking around gloomy with their heads down. They are discouraged and despairing. That's them acting like the party's over because it was in their minds. But he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away for crucifixion, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. And so now he's going to use three word pictures, three illustrations of why they shouldn't act like it's a funeral, why they should act like it's a party. That's what he's going to give here, three kind of word pictures. And so the first is, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So you have uh, your faithful old pair of jeans, and it's got a bad hole in it. You go to Target, because that's where you buy jeans, and you cut out a piece of that cloth and you put it on your old jeans because you love your old jeans so much. A, you just ruined the pair of jeans from Target. And B, when you go and wash that pair of jeans and now the, the fabric shrinks for the first time, it's going to tear the patch that you just made. So you've ruined both the old and the new. And then he uses a second illustration. This one may seem unfamiliar to you if you uh, are, are new to the Bible in some ways. Uh, this idea of wineskins. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. So what is a wineskin? And what does it have to do with anything? So a wineskin, maybe you could picture like a milk jug, which generally in our day is made out of plastic. It wasn't plastic in Jesus' day. So they would use Skins, it's disgusting. You would kill, say, a goat or a sheep, and you would empty it out, and then you would sew the skin of the sheep or the goat together, and you have a pouch. Now, this is gross. It's kind of like sausage casing is the way I thought of it. But when it's fresh, it's going to be pliable. It's going to be elasticy, and it's going to be able to expand. And so you have this bag of nastiness. But it's, it's okay. It expands. It does what it's supposed to do. You put the new wine in there, and it's all good. The, the wine will continue to, to ferment in there, but it will be okay because the bag will expand. It's, it's elastic-y. But then over time, it's going to sit there in your cellar, let's say. You have a bag of wine, a skin of wine in your cellar. And over time, that bag is going to kind of harden up. It's not elastic anymore, and you're going to drink that wine and then you're going to have more wine. You're going to crush more grapes, and you're going to go through this fermentation process again. Where are you going to put that wine? Well, you put that in the old bag, in the old wineskin, and it's going to crack. It's going, the, the fermentation process is going to continue in that bag again, 
But this time it's not elastic. Now it's brittle. It's like a dried rubber band that's just going to pop. And so now you've lost the benefit of the wine and you don't have your wineskin anymore. And Jesus is saying, why would you waste the good wine, the new wine, by putting it in an old wineskin? Let me give you the third example that he gives and then I'm going to tell you the connection between these three and how these three word pictures tie in with the idea of your guys are acting like it's a party. So the third one he uses here is in verse 39. No one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. And what he's referring to here, I think, and again, this takes some, some you know, working through various uh, resources and trying to argue with this about this in my mind different ways. I think what he's saying is, it's kind of like somebody who, uh, who gets a new hand um, push mower, a new push mower that's, uh, that's motorized, and he looks at it and says, wow, so all you have to do is pull a string, and then it, you just pull the handle and it walks for you? Nah, I'll just use my old real mower. That works just fine, like the kind my grandpa had. You know, it does work, but it's not as good. Why would you go back to your real mower, that's what it's called, R-E-E-L, a real mower. Why would you go back to that where you're manually cutting the grass yourself instead of letting this newfangled one do it for you? Why would you do that? Because the old one's fine. I don't need the new one. And I'm sure all of us can think of examples from our grandmothers and grandfathers who have said the same thing. Like, I don't need a new car. You know, my 1984 Chevelle is working fine. And Jesus is saying, no, the old is not fine. The new is better. What is he saying? He's saying, when I came, the party started. When Jesus came to the earth, the party started. The new era began. And so now the old covenant, the old way of living under the law and of having to go to the temple to offer sacrifices to atone for your sin and not being able to pray directly to God, but having to go to a priest who then goes in and and prays for you, all of that is the old way. Why would you keep vestiges of that and leave the new off to the side, the newfangled mower that can actually do a job in half the time with half the energy? And this is a problem that has continued throughout church history, and even early on in church history, the book of Hebrews addresses this problem specifically, that people were saying, you know, following Jesus is too hard. I'm just going to go back to the old way. I'll go back to offering sacrifices. And, but the new covenant, Hebrews tells us, is better in every way. You have better worship. You have a better relationship with God. You have better access to God. You have better forgiveness of sins and that your sins are gone forever. You don't have to keep offering a sacrifice day after day. All this is the blessing of the new covenant, having the Holy Spirit indwelling you. And you're going to go back to the old way? Why would you do that? Eh, the old just as good as the new. No, it's not. No, it's not. Don't go back and assume that you can piece things together spiritually by keeping the law in some way. Well, look, I showed up at church on Sunday. I read my Bible yesterday like you told me to read my Bible for a long time on a Saturday, and I did that. And I wore a tie today. See, God must love me. No. Yes, he does, but not because of those things. He loves you because he loves you. Not because you did something 
through your performance to make him love you more. He can't love you more and he can't love you less. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I brought in the new way, a new and better way. The book of Hebrews calls it a new and living way. And so he's telling you, the implication here is, you should take joy that you are alive in the new covenant era, that you are enjoying new covenant blessings. The party did begin when Jesus came, is what he's saying. So it's not inappropriate to party. It would be inappropriate not to celebrate at the wedding and to act like it's a funeral. So this is essentially talking about finding your joy in God, finding your joy in this new and better covenant. And maybe a few ways you can do that. One is by listening to good music that encourages you and strengthens your faith. Another is what I was talking about earlier, taking a day and just spending time with God in the woods or some very quiet place. Uh, recounting your personal salvation history, just writing down, where did my salvation begin? Before the foundation of the world, okay? Now from there, where? And then you kind of just walk through, what does it look like for the fact that God has saved me? And rejoice in that and take great joy in, in the fact that you are living under the new covenant. And so finally, let me, just, let me just say, for those of our friends today who perhaps have never encountered the gospel in this way before, who has never considered yourself unclean in need of being cleaned cleansed maybe you've never considered yourself outside of forgiveness from god i'm fine with god the way i am no you need forgiveness maybe you have been fine with the old way with kind of this works righteousness instead of righteousness through christ what we want to appeal to you is to see the beauty of the gospel in the fact that god draws sinners to himself he initiates salvation moving toward you And we want to urge you, with the apostles in the New Testament, to repent and believe the gospel and bear works of righteousness, not to be saved, but because you have been loved and saved. The Bible says salvation is a gift from God, and we receive that gift by humble faith in Jesus, who perfectly obeyed when you couldn't and gives you his perfect righteousness to replace your wickedness. And so like those people in that subway in Washington listening to the most beautiful music they could have ever imagined hearing on their way to work or their way to school that day, stop and hear the music. Stop and see the beauty of Christ and let his glorious gospel wash over you anew. Let's, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for Christ and for the new life we have in him, for the new and better way we have in him. And we pray that, that our hearts would be satisfied in him and that we truly would be repentant followers, people who are willing to give up all to follow you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.